In this episode, I chat with Dr. Lindsay Jernigan about how the pandemic has affected our mental health, when feeling down or being anxious turns into something more, and how to build resilience in your life, whether you're able to access a therapist right now or not. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy. And I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Lindsay Jernigan, who is a leading clinical psychologist who has worked with hundreds of individuals, couples, and organizations during her career spanning over 20 years. In addition to her private practice, she facilitates integrative retreats for women, spouses, partners, and leaders, conducts training for therapists, and provides expert commentary and advice to publications such as Psychology Today, U.S. News and World Report, Oprah Magazine, Washington Post, and more. Using her broad knowledge base and vast experience, Dr. Lindsay has developed Reboot, a series of self-paced online courses to reach those who may not have in-person access to professional psychologists or be able to afford ongoing therapy. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you, and I know we're going to talk about some wonderful, amazing resources today, and I just want to thank you again and welcome you, and so let's dive right in. I know that you are working as a therapist, and you're very passionate about helping people get the care that they need right now, and as much as we want to be over with this pandemic and, you know, a lot of people are going back to, quote, back to normal, we're seeing a rise in cases in the Delta variant, and there's still a lot of uncertainty. And we can still see the mental health impacts of the past year. And we're going to be processing this grief and trauma for years to come in many different ways, I imagine. And so, you know, we've seen a rise in people seeking therapy and mental health care during the pandemic. And so I'm curious, what are the common mental health issues that you've been seeing in your work over the past year, year and a half? So in my work, I'm seeing an increase in people coming in with depression and anxiety, with substance abuse and eating disorders, which are really just fancy words for different kinds of human suffering. I think the bottom line is human suffering skyrocketed in the pandemic, which really is um, not surprising given how challenging the conditions were. I think our, our culture actually set us up poorly by privileging positivity and privileging stoicism, right? So what I was seeing was a lot of people coming in to therapy saying, what's wrong with me? I'm having such a hard time. And our work was in large part to normalize for them that they were having a hard time because times were really hard and that 
that it was normal to be struggling, right? So that doesn't make the pain go away, but it's sort of like taking the salt out of the wound to help people understand that they're suffering because they're social creatures who are forced into isolation. They're suffering because they lost their stability and their certainty and their sense of safety. Mm, yeah. I like to think that we're, as humans, we really thrive on stability interrupted by novelty. So we get a sense of security, but also the expansiveness of new experiences. And in the pandemic, we lost both, which seems odd that you could lose both at the same time, but we did. And what we had instead was this prolonged state of uncertainty, of increased work stress, of the the mm -hmm. massive escalation of the challenge to balance home life and work life, particularly for women, right? That struggle just went through the roof. Yeah. Fear about our own safety, the safety of loved ones. For 23 million people, job loss, financial insecurity, right? I know your listeners are really familiar with how massive an impact that has on mental health. There was also a tidal wave of grief, right? The loss of loved ones, the loss of important key moments, and milestone markers in our lives, the um, self-esteem hit that comes from increased time on social media, well, and looking at you know comparative images on social media, that that was a big driver in um, the rise in eating disorders and drop in self-esteem. So as depression rose and anxiety rose, the next thing to rise is the increase in unhealthy coping mechanisms, right? So that's when you then see for example, the rise in substance abuse disorders. Yeah, you brought up so many good points. And, you know, I feel like this past year has been so difficult for so many people. And you brought up this feeling of like, why am I having such a hard time? And, you know, that's something that my therapist calls the second arrow of like, there's the arrow of the, this is hard, this hurts. But then there's the second arrow of me berating myself, wondering, why am I doing so poorly? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? And, you know, we're dealing with a difficult situation. And then on top of that, we're not able to take care of ourselves in the same exact way that we used to. And so then we have this shame and blame and guilt that's making it even worse. And that can be so difficult. And, you know, you mentioned points about increased substance abuse, which I know so many people have turned to alcohol and drugs this past year just to to survive. And, you know, so many people who have been sober for long periods of time, their sobriety has been threatened over the past, you know, year. And we have that sense of community that has kept so many people together that has felt like it's been reshaped in a way. And we're figuring out how is that going to, you know, manage in our lives going forward? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sense of community in general was just um, stripped away. And I believe that was a huge part of the increased suffering for all of us. And yeah, you mentioned not being able to take care of ourselves in some of the usual ways. That's a really important point too. You know, our, our coping mechanisms, like things as simple as exercise mm -hmm. became challenging, right? With For some people, they relied on their gyms and the gyms closed. For some people, you know, lockdown was so severe that they weren't supposed to come out of their homes or their apartments. And um, so exercise became harder to come by. Sleep became really hard to come by because yeah. of chronic, chronic stress and anxiety. And sleep is absolutely critical for our emotional well-being. The, 
amygdala is a part of the brain that regulates emotion, and it simply doesn't function properly if we're sleep deprived. So here we are with stress and loss higher than ever, and our usual coping mechanisms of connection and exercise and sleep being taken away um, was very, very challenging. And continues to be, as you pointed out in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. Even though things are opening up, it's not like mental health is just rebounding immediately. Uh, It's going to take a while. Yeah, we're going to be processing this for a long time. And you brought up so many good points. You know, I go to boxing class for my mental health, and it's a huge part of my mental health care to get out anxiety and anger and resentment. And that was a huge loss for me personally during the pandemic is not being able to go to boxing class. And Mm -hmm. while I was grateful to see my therapist virtually, you know, it wasn't the same because then we have some of those tech issues, the delays, and then the increased processing in your brain that can also be more draining. And then, yeah, you brought up the point of sleep. And I'm just remembering the first couple of months of the pandemic, I would wake up like clockwork at 3am and then I would be doom scrolling. And (laughs) that's definitely not Mm. what you should be doing. But you know, it's like this increased scrolling to feel like I have a sense of control of what's going on, what's going on. But then in turn, I'm making myself more miserable and more anxious. And it took a long right. time to try to restabilize. But yeah, during those first couple of months, I think all of us were just completely thrown for a loop and readjusting in completely new ways. Yeah. The exposure to media is such a good point there too about the doom scrolling. Watching the news was a really important part of being able to feel some semblance of control, right? We get some knowledge about what's happening and therefore what we can do to keep ourselves safe or what we can do to be helpful. Mm -hmm. But the problem is the news cycles are designed to create fear because that holds the listener's attention, the viewer's attention. And so I think what was happening was a lot of people were really flooding themselves with media information in an effort to try to feel control. And the result was the opposite of what was intended. The result was feeling fully helpless and hopeless and overwhelmed by anxiety. So learning to regulate your exposure and step away from the media, um, that was another thing I talked with people a lot about in the in the heat of the pandemic. Yeah, totally. And it really can do a number on your mental health. And it got to a point where after a few months, I was like, I can't keep doing this because I'm making myself miserable. It's sacrificing my sleep. And so I completely changed my morning routine where I said, I'm not going to look at my phone or email or social media for the first hour or two. And instead I went on a walk. I read a book and my mental health just shifted so much just from that simple act. And I've been trying to keep it up as much as possible because it really does keep me in a more proactive, calm state rather than a reactive one where I'm just (laughs) waking up immediately, consuming information and reacting to whatever doom and gloom is out there. Right, exactly. And then in that healthier state of your own, you're in a better position to make good decisions about how to respond to the crises in the world and how to be helpful. And that, of course, is the whole point of watching the news in the first place. So there's a tipping point, right, where if you watch too much, it stops serving its purpose. And those tools that you found for your own self-care, your instincts there were great because you got both exercise and fresh air at the same time. And that's kind of like the holy grail for mental health. 
that was a really good choice on your part. The movement gives you neurochemicals that keep your mental health sound. And as does the fresh air, it's like a mindful experience to be outside and it helps right size the stressors to remember that we're part of something much bigger and and more stable than what we're experiencing in our human culture. Yes. It was so great to just get outside because we've been, you know, stuck in our homes for so long, just having the outside being like, okay, we have this whole world accessible to us, even though for the most part of the day, I'm stuck inside in this small space, there is a whole big world out there that will be available again, and that I can connect with. And, you know, being away from screens, I think in today's modern age, especially with so many people working from home, people on social media, I mean, I know for myself, I'm in front of a screen way more hours than I'm not. (laughs) And I'm trying to minimize that as much as possible. But it's kind of difficult because of the type of work that I do. But that's the case for a lot of people is that we are in front of screens more often than not. And so it's really important that we carve that space to not be in front of screens. Like, what is the reality that is not being mediated through a computer or phone or TV screen? Yes, absolutely. And not only not being mediated by, but uh, I'm watching this thing happen more and more where not only are we mediating and documenting all of our experiences with social media, we're creating experiences to show them on social media. Mm, Yeah, that's such an important point. It's like a whole nother degree of living through the camera that can be really ungrounding. Totally. Yeah, that's such a fascinating point. Like social media has shifted so much of the way we live, the way we view, the way we perform in our in our daily lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And so to come back to the mental health impact, the I, I see two things happening with the with the media exposure. I see the anxiety rise and I see the self-comparison struggle, which happens not through mainstream media so much as through social media. It also interrupts sleep. You know, we were talking about sleep a moment ago, and most people probably know this by now, but it's really a problem. The blue light from our devices mimics the sun. And so Mm. um, if we look at our devices before bed at night, our brain doesn't make melatonin, which is the natural hormone our bodies create to help us fall asleep. But if our brain thinks it's daytime, it doesn't give us melatonin. And so then we have trouble falling asleep. And so it's part of the cycle of the demise of mental health, that the there's these primary stressors of looking at a screen, and then there's this secondary stressor, which is the the rise in sleep deprivation, which further destabilizes our mental and emotional wellness. Thank you so much for sharing kind of the physiological impact of that, because I I knew the mental health impact, but I didn't really know the physiological kind of undertone of why that Mm. happened. And so thank you for sharing that. It was really helpful. And so, you know, talking about mental health and mental health care and something that we say in the show is get help, reach out. And, you know, while I still stand by that message, what we've seen over the past year is that you know, therapists are also maxed out too. I mean, therapists are people (laughs) and probably a lot of therapists have therapists or or need therapists as well. And, you know, but it's a profession like any others. And there's 
a finite amount of time and energy that they can take on more clients. And so something that I've seen from my community is they've tried to reach out. A lot of therapists are booked. They don't have space or it's just, you know, far beyond um, anything that they could afford. And so what can someone do if they're trying to find help, but therapists don't have the capacity right now? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I, I really wish there was an easy answer. You know, I, in my work, I, I have my own private practice and then I supervise about 20 other clinicians and um, everybody's booked, you know, not quite chronically, like openings come up here and there, but the reality is there's definitely a greater need right now than there is real capacity in therapist schedules. So what I tell people is to First of all, to keep trying, it's going to take more than one reach out and you want to get yourself on multiple waiting lists and there's nothing wrong with reaching out to multiple therapists at the same time. We therapists know that you have to do that in order to to find someone who has availability. There's a really great search engine on the Psychology Today website. It's www.psychologytoday.com and there's a link for find a therapist and you can put in a location and then there are, um, you know, search engine selections you can make to find somebody who takes your insurance or who specializes in certain things or works with certain populations. And most therapists in your area will have put their bio on psychology today. And so you can find a photograph of them and read a little bio in their own words and easily reach out to people. And so what I recommend to people is they go on Psychology Today and send a message to 10 people, the 10 people who stand out to you, who your instincts tell you might be a good fit, and then see who has availability. Another good resource is your primary care doctor. Uh, they're obviously not a resource for therapy, but they can help you assess how urgent your mental health situation is and if... Mm -hmm. If a, a medication trial is in order, your GP is probably your fastest bet for somebody to help start that for you. So, I mean, that's those are two resources. And then thinking about your own self-care is also really important. So uh, things like biological care, like exercise and sleep and regular eating, socio-emotional care, like making sure, as you're saying, keep reaching out, right? Don't try to do it alone. Connect with the important people in your life and a lot of self-compassion. So really giving yourself room to feel what you're feeling without judging it, without trying to be okay when you're not right? It's okay to struggle. We often mm -hmm. try not to feel the low end of our emotional range and we judge ourselves for feeling the hard stuff. Um, again, because our culture really privileges positivity and our, our culture privileges stoicism. It's part of a patriarchy, right? The lack of emotionality. So emotions get labeled with negative words like being needy or being weak being neurotic and none of that is real. You know, the, our emotions are are part of our natural humanity and and our natural state is one of flow, which includes coming in and out of yes, the positive feelings but also the hard ones. So part of the self-care should be giving yourself a lot of permission and space to feel everything you feel without trying to make it go away. I love that. I think that's so important to point out is that Life is this vessel of experiences, both good and bad. And 
part of the package is that we get both, you know, there's no kind of, well, let me just try to have the good stuff only. I mean, that's not the, right. the package or the, the contract of life that we, we do have to have both. And, you know, when we are having those negative times, it can, you know, bring those joyous times to even higher highs and, and remind us that, oh yes, this feels so amazing. And as we go through life, we can remind ourselves that these down moments are temporary, that they come and go, and that we don't have to let them define our life forever, that we can take proactive steps to try to heal and manage the emotions, but not bury them. And, you know, so something that we kind of mentioned earlier is that a lot of people feel so uncomfortable with their negative emotions, probably because they don't know how to deal with them. And so people tend to numb out with food, alcohol, drugs, sex, et cetera, insert whatever vice here. You know, <laughs> what are some ways that people can sit in their discomfort instead of turning to the bottle or turning to, you know, whatever substance du jour is, is making them feel better? Right. Well, I mean, I love the way you ask the question because there's there's an answer in the question in the way you've asked it, which is how do we learn to sit with it rather than numb it out, right? Learning to sit with it is really important. So, you know, I have clients come in telling me, I can't sit with it anymore. I've been feeling terrible for so long and I just need it to go away. And when we really examine it, what we discover is they haven't been feeling it and allowing it to flow. They've been fighting against it for days and weeks and months and years trying not to feel this thing. And that's when we get stuck with it, right? It's like we've dropped it to the bottom of the river because we don't want to experience it. And now it's stuck at the bottom and now we can't get away from it. So, so the way you've asked the question kind of is the answer itself, which is the task is to get comfortable sitting with the feeling. So you, know, you can do that by learning to share it right? So you're not sitting with it alone. Really try opening up to the trusted people in your life. You can also try scaffolding it. So it may be too much to all of a sudden feel everything for some undefined amount of time, but you could try setting a certain time. I had a, a friend of mine tell me just the other day that uh, when she was teaching in the pandemic, she was super overwhelmed. I mean, the, you know, the life of teachers was extremely stressful and challenging in the pandemic and she would find herself getting overwhelmed and she'd set a timer and give herself 10 minutes to just cry. And then her timer would go off and she would know she had to, she had to kind of for better or worse, compartmentalize it for now. Right. And then mm -hmm. move back on with her day and compartmentalizing isn't a great long-term goal, but she found this way to scaffold her connection to the pain so that it wouldn't overwhelm her in the moment. And then, you know, so we've been talking about it in terms of how to open up the feelings. If you're someone who's trying not to feel them and that is the story for many, many people. It's not the story for everybody. Some people go from zero to 100 and feel their feelings really intensely and actually do need some help figuring out how to turn the volume down or how to regulate it to a more tolerable level. Mm -hmm. And so that's a whole different set of skills and tasks. So, you know, if that's speaking to the listener here now, if that's you, the task would be to build insight about what tips off your high emotions and then develop some strategies to help soothe yourself when those buttons get pushed. And so that might be something as simple as deep breathing and something as active as exercise 
or anything that kind of changes your um, vibrational emotional state. So it could be turning on music. It could be if you're inside going outside or if you're outside going inside, something that creates a changed state can help break the cycle of escalation. But, you know, the key there is that those shouldn't be steps you take because you're trying to not feel something painful, (laughs) right? These are strategies you want to use if you've gone from zero to a hundred and you need to bring it back down to a palatable level. (laughs) I'm so glad you brought up that example because I definitely feel like old me who is not as healed as I am today is definitely that person who went from zero to a hundred and for a lot of the time I had unhealthy coping mechanisms like drinking or, you know, self-harm. And it took so much work to kind of rewire my brain to kind of lower the volume, as you say, and to sit in that discomfort and focus on meditation and mindfulness and taking a bath or even just saying, you know what, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to nap it off and, you know, just (laughs) allowing myself to literally just sit with it and lay with it and hopefully just wake up feeling better and rested. And sometimes that can be a really useful tool. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it's as simple as challenging yourself to wait a tiny bit longer before you turn to your usual numbing out strategy, right? So when you first think about um, picking up the glass of wine, if that's your favorite numbing out strategy, you just ask yourself to wait 10 minutes, for example. And just sort of, it's another version of scaffolding where you're building your tolerance for that discomfort little by little by little. Oh, I love that. And yeah, that is so important to create some distance between the initial impulse And the action that potentially may come after that, because yeah, creating that distance can really just help you kind of divorce yourself from that eventually. But yes, it takes a lot of time to kind of build up to that tolerance. Right. Yeah, you got it. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how the pandemic has affected people's mental health and so many people are seeking care right now. And so I'm curious, what are your thoughts about, you know, people who, they're having a bad day or they have a sour mood, like when does it turn into full-blown depression and anxiety? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I'd actually like to take those separately, um, depression and anxiety, I mean. So, you know, sadness and grief are healthy and natural and part of our full emotional range and healthy emotional spectrum. And it is it does get confusing for people. How can you tell the difference between healthy sadness and grief versus depression where somebody right might really need more of an intervention. So, you know, there are some key symptoms people could could watch for to help them understand the difference. So, one of them in our technical language is called anhedonia, which really just means like a lack of joy and pleasure in things that somebody used to find joy and pleasure in. And that's different than a sad mood, right? Like you can be feeling sad or be sad about something and still know that you're excited to go see your cousins tomorrow or go for that hike, or you're excited about the job promotion or whatever it is. There's some still source of joy. Mm -hmm. Whereas with depression, our capacity for joy drops out. And so the things that we used to enjoy stop being enjoyable. And so, you know, people lose interest in their hobbies, for example, and even lose interest in social contact and start to withdraw 
socially. So that that's a key thing to watch for is that anhedonia or the loss of joy. There's also some really common emotional and thought patterns with depression, like um, feelings of helplessness and hopelessness are really common with depression and not so much with just a bad day. Mm -hmm. And uh, something we call the negative cognitive triad, which is negative thoughts about three things, the self, the future, and the world in general. And again, that doesn't really accompany a bad day or a sad mood. That's more the result of an ongoing depressive state. So if you find yourself um, sort of chronically having negative assumptions or thoughts about yourself and about what your future holds or about the state of the world in general, that might be a time to consider having a talk with your doctor about depression. There's also biological signs of depression, um, like a dysregulation in our sleep and wakefulness. So having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, having low energy through the day, like feeling fatigued no matter how much sleep you got. That's another indicator of depression. And the our appetite and weight regulation can also be impacted by depression. So a change in appetite or a change in weight can be an indicator. So one way to understand that is that, you know, sadness, sadness is a passing mood and depression is about the, the levels of certain neurochemicals in our brain. And those neurochemicals impact things other than just mood. They impact our, some of our biological functions. So it's not just a mood. It's, it's really a complex biological medical disorder that has all these other indicators to watch for. And then the last thing I'd say about recognizing depression is that the degree of distress and dysfunction matters, you know, as opposed to a passing mood. If you're really suffering, not feeling like yourself, or you're finding yourself um, self-harming or thinking about suicide, those are some clear indicators that it's gone beyond just a sour mood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And as someone who has had major depressive episodes, they definitely resonated with everything that you have said. And, you know, those are such clear indicators and yeah, it takes up so much of your life in so many different ways. And it's not just, you know, this feeling of, of being blue. Right. Exactly. And, you know, so, so you were also asking about anxiety and it can be similarly complicated because worry is a really natural part of being a human being. But anxiety is really uncomfortable and um, often needs some intervention or some treatment. So how can you tell the difference? You know, I think the, um, like with depression, the key is the degree of distress and dysfunction. One way to understand what anxiety really is, is it's like your body giving you the stress response that you would need if you were unsafe in a moment right? So it mm-hmm. gives you the adrenaline and it gives you the cortisol because you are you have to be ready to run away from the attacker, but there's no attacker. And so you've got the adrenaline and the cortisol and the vigilance and the, the readiness to, to fight for your life or run away. But in fact, it's happening in a moment when you're safe. And so while that response would be life-saving in another moment, it's incredibly uncomfortable if you're just sitting at your desk or sitting at home or trying to have a social interaction. And so that can happen in all kinds of all kinds of different ways. Like there's not just one way anxiety presents. It can be in a phobia where you have that anxious response to a certain thing, or it can be in generalized anxiety where you're having that response to 
any large number of things or social anxiety where you're feeling unsafe in social situations when in fact you're actually safe. You know, so, But the thing that ties them all together is that experience of having a response that doesn't match the moment. And so that can be one of the indicators you watch for if you're, if you're trying to figure out if your anxiety needs some additional support is, am I having a response that really doesn't make sense in this moment? And if so, am I suffering a lot as a result? Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. That was so well put and very informative. And uh, I loved hearing more about depression and anxiety for people listening. And so I also want to talk about this concept of resilience, which I actually love that word. I actually have a tattoo on my wrist that says resilient. No with, way. Um, the two semicolons, which is in honor of Project Semicolon, which is a suicide prevention organization, which basically the, the concept is that your story is not over yet. You know, an author uses a semicolon when they want to continue with their story. So it's a very mm. lovely kind of personal meaning. So yeah, I love the word resilient. I have a tattoo on my wrist about it. And, you know, you actually just created a course on resilience. And so I'm curious, what is your personal definition of resilience? Yeah. Well, I love that you have that tattoo. That's so great. Um, so my, I think of resilience as being the capacity to tap into your inner strength and fluidity and flexibility, even in the face of great struggle. So, you know, the term came into vogue in the field when there was research being done to figure out why some people could come through hard times and still thrive and other people really struggled very deeply. So researchers were looking at kids who were growing up in um, in tough growing up family situations. They were looking at soldiers who were coming home from war and trying to figure out what are the factors that that seem to protect an individual so that they can get through a hard time and they can weather the storm and still be okay on the other side. So, you know, resilience is that capacity to weather the storm. But it's so important to me that that not get confused with the stoicism or the toxic positivity that we were talking about earlier. Because strength doesn't mean not feeling the pain. And coping effectively doesn't mean being impervious to challenging life events, right? Strength and resilience mean being able to feel fully and expand and deepen our sense of ourselves as a result of life's struggles. And so resilience means being able to feel it all and keep growing and keep going. And resilience means feeling the pain and still not being afraid to open to our vulnerability rather than shutting down into a more into a more rigid, closed state. So to me, the term resilience encompasses all of that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I think, you know, resilience is so much about, like you said, being able to keep going in the face of adversity. And yeah, it doesn't mean that you are not feeling your feelings or that you're pushing things down. It just means that you can accept what is or what has happened and continue to go on with the best of your ability and to continue to strive to manage in whatever way that you can while also trying to live a life full of joy and, and beauty. Right, exactly. And to tap into that core state of, of natural health and wellness. I really believe that's everybody's core state. And so resilience means being able to tap into that even in the face of hard times. So how can people foster resilience after dealing with a setback? 
there's a lot of ways I'll, I'll sort of throw a couple ideas out there for now. I did just, as you mentioned, create an e-course um, about resilience, really because of the problem we were talking about earlier, that the need level has outpaced the capacity for therapists to, to support one-on-one exactly when clients need it. And so the idea behind the e-course is it's a resource for people um, a professionally guided self-paced resource that people can use while they're waiting to get in with a therapist, or maybe it even is enough to help somebody get back on track as they tap into their own resilience. So it, it talks about things like not judging your feelings, really letting the feelings flow. Uh, it talks about connection, sharing your pain with other people, with safe other people, and overcoming the cultural stories and scripts that lead us to believe there's something wrong with feeling our feelings. So, I mean, to answer your question, these are ways to foster resilience, right? Feeling what you feel, connecting to other people, building on the biological self-care that I was talking about. So really focusing on sleep hygiene and getting exercise regularly and getting healthy food regularly. That's a super important part of resilience. We are chemistry sets. I mean, if any of your listeners are parents and have raised toddlers, there's no better, <laughs> there's no better proof that human beings are chemistry sets than hanging out with a toddler. And you can just see the emotional dysregulation that happens if they get hungry or they get tired. And we get a little better at, at, at hiding it as adults, but we are <laughs> nonetheless, we are chemistry sets to the same degree as toddlers, even as adults. Um, you used the word mindfulness earlier. Developing mindfulness practices is a great way to build resilience. It actually changes our brain structure in ways that promote resilience, promote um, stress reduction and positive moods to engage in regular mindfulness activities, which could be meditation. It could be yoga. It could be a quiet walk in the woods. Um, it could even be a gratitude journal, right? Fostering gratitude is another way actually to foster resilience. And it's another thing that um, it's a very cool time to be in this field because there's all these new ways of measuring impact and outcomes of certain interventions. So we can now use fMRIs to study the brains of people who are gratitude journaling. And instead of just having to rely on people saying, yeah, that was helpful, we can actually look at their brains and see that brain structure and brain chemistry is being altered by things like mindfulness and gratitude in ways wow. that support ongoing resilience. It's really fascinating. And it's really great for someone like me who tends to be a little bit resistant to anything that's in vogue, right? Mm -hmm. Like when I was in middle school, I wouldn't wear anything from Benetton because it was Benetton and it was in vogue. And so I'm sort of <laughs> the same way about things like mindfulness. Like when that became in vogue, that sort of in and of itself was a turnoff to me and I became a little resistant to it. But when you look at the the direct research and how it's changing people's brains, it really becomes indisputable that that mindfulness practices and gratitude practices really genuinely do help build resilience. Yeah. Thanks so much for bringing that up because I am similar in the sense that, you know, of course I love the stuff that will make you feel good and that are popular, but I'm always like, where's the science? Let's look at the science. Mm -hmm. And so I actually read this book called mindfulness, an eight week program to deal with the frantic world. I am um, forgetting the author's name, but we'll be sure to have it in the show notes. But mm -hmm. that book was so 
beautiful for me because I read another book, I think called Untethered Soul, which I really enjoyed, but it seemed a little bit too intellectual or woo-woo for me. But Mm -hmm. then when I read Mindfulness, an eight-week program to deal with a frantic world, it had the research studies, it had actionable tips to do and start today. And it really changed my life because I could see the data and I could also do things today to actually start the mindfulness practice where you know, it was more actionable rather than intellectual. And so that really helped me. Yeah. I love that you're saying all that. I mean, that's uh, that mixture of the empirical evidence and the felt experience and the intuitive knowledge about something. That's part of what I really strive to to consolidate, to bring together and integrate, you know, with like a background in a PhD in clinical psychology, and then also a background in intuitive awareness, um, for example, right? I'm I'm trying to bring together for people the strength and and mm, I, the word in my head is magic, which leans towards the woo woo side, but it's like a combination of the science and the magic, right? Bringing those yeah. together, I think, is the most effective intervention. So that's a lot of what I'm trying to bring in the e-course as well. I love that. This has been so wonderful. And I super appreciate your time and sharing your expertise. And so if there's anything else you'd like to share, I'd love to hear your thoughts and where can people find you? Yeah. uh, People can find me on my website, which is um, www.drlindsayjernigan.com. It's D-R for doctor and then L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. J-E-R-N-I-G-A-N.com. I'm sure you can put that in your show notes. And you can find my e-course there. There's a Let's Get Started button under the e-courses tab. And um, in your show notes, we'll make sure to get you a promotional code so your listeners can receive a 10% discount on the course. And on my website, you can also subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be notified when future courses are ready too. I'm already excited to get working on a course just for women about women's liberation and uh, another one for couples. So um, there's lots of good stuff to come. Ah, Thank you so much. You are doing such important work and I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.